Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Institute's Summit on Prison Mindfulness. And I'm happy to be here with Martine Batchelor, who is a well-known author, teacher, was a Zen nun for 14 years in Korea, and she has worked in prisons. So um, welcome, Martine. Actually, I was only 10 years as a nun in Korea, and I only worked once in a prison. Okay. But you had some experience in prisons that left an imprint on you, right? Yeah. So what... No, no, I mean... The only, I mean, my also, I think my husband uh, uh, was for ten years a prison chaplain, so he kind of told me things. Okay. That one time in South Africa, uh, we went to teach meditation in a prison. But at the same time, I'm also very interested in habits, and in a way, what are the habits that might kind of uh, take you to prison? Right. And also, when you are in prison, uh, and that's why the Prison Mindfulness Project is about how, when you are in prison, can you work with the help of people so that those habits or those conditions that brought you there can actually be different uh, once you come out, or even while you are in prison. So um, would you say your approach to teaching that is, comes from a secular, is a secular Buddhist approach rather than teaching straight Dharma to people? Or, I mean, secular Dharma is secular, is straight Dharma, but you know what I mean? To, uh, so, I mean, let's say uh, I would not strictly uh, kind of teach in a religious way in terms of <laughs> uh, chanting, bowing, etc. I would not necessarily do this. Also, if I am in a place where people do this, I can happily do that. But I think when, uh, again, if you are in a prison system, it very much depends uh, what's the culture of the country. Uh, If you are more considered like a religious person or if you're more considered like a kind of a teaching helpful person. And so... Uh, what I really like is actually in England, you have a very good uh, association, uh, which is combining yoga and meditation in prison in England, in Great Britain. And actually what they do is really, I think, excellent. So I follow them because I, I'm very inspired by what they do. And so they have a little newsletter, and in the newsletter, they have the prisoner uh, write about the experience of mindfulness and meditation. And what I find very interesting in terms of their work is that they combine the yoga, they combine the movement with the meditation itself, which is more or less mindfulness meditation. And how actually for people who are often... uh, kind of don't have much place to move and think of that nature, how also yoga is also a very good idea. And at the same time, what I found the most striking about them is in the newsletter when the prisoner 
say that through the mindfulness, through the yoga, they can experience themselves differently. That's what I find really interesting, that when we caught in our habits, let's say harmful habits to ourselves and to others, we don't know in a way anything else. So we kind of really, we're going to experience unpleasant tonality, and then we're going to react from that. And what is interesting with the experience in prison, because you're kind of a little obliged, you're there, and then you decide to do yoga and meditation. And then suddenly, through the practice, you actually experience some, yourself in a different way. You experience yourself as calm, you experience yourself as kind, you experience, and that's what's really kind of, um, I found very interesting when somebody said, I never knew I could experience this. I never knew I could experience calm. I never knew I could experience insight or I could experience loving kindness or whatever it is. And I find that interesting is the fact that mindfulness and yoga can help someone to actually have a different experience. Yeah. And so then they can see, oh, this is possible for me too. You know, I am not stuck to feel the same thing. Right. So would you say that, um, that mindfulness helps people to um, get out of the habit of unhelpful reactivity, you know, that unskillful reactivity, and it helps them repattern to react in a different way with more calm? Right. First, uh, they are in a different environment. Yeah. Uh, and so because they are in a different environment, they will be in different conditions. I mean, the conditions in prison are not necessarily uh, great. But like yeah. so my husband uh, was saying that there was this young man who came from a milieu, uh, a family which was, we could say, a gangster family. So mm -hmm. his milieu was really kind of generally doing illegal things and having I mean, kind of like often quite impulsive, quite reactive. So he was in this milieu where it was normal to shout, to be aggressive, etc., etc. And then because he, that impulsivity uh, and illegality took him to jail, then actually out of his milieu, he was quite a nice person. Of course, as long as you do, did not provoke him in certain way, he was a really quite a nice, ordinary person. So in a way, what he had to work on was his impulsivity. And so I find that there is some of the work that has been done long ago in California, and you must be familiar with, when actually some uh, therapies come meditation teacher were actually trying to diminish the sensitivity to the unpleasantness. And so they did this experiment where you would have the, the person and then people would kind of slander directly the person in order to lower in a controlled situation to see this is safe, this guy is not attacking me, but 
the, the reactivity one has toward slandering or people looking at you a certain way, and then your reaction is so strong that it's very hard not to have the impulsion to attack, to negate, to annihilate. And here they were trying to actually reduce the intensity. Oh, yes, somebody can kind of, you know, say, call me a bad name, and I don't have to react intensely. I can consider this in a different way. I can be with it in a different way. So I think in part, mindfulness helps, I would say in some way, to reduce intensity. Because I think not everybody, but some people are there because they're impulsive and because they react intensely. And so I would say it reduces the intensity. And also they find ways, uh, because that's what part of the teaching is about, find different ways to communicate, different ways to engage with others instead of being aggressive or whatever it might be. So was this project using mindfulness as one of the tools to get them to slow down and be more aware of that unpleasantness and not act on it or something? I am not totally sure because I read this quite a long time ago. So it possibly was before mindfulness was in or was it combined with mindfulness? I cannot guarantee at this moment because this was quite some years ago. Yeah. But mindfulness can do that. You know, it can help. Yeah, you exactly. I think, I think part of yeah. the mindfulness of meditation is to really kind of, in a way, lower the intensity, lower the sensitivity, but not becoming insensitive, but actually lowering the intensity. And then I think it gives also space because sometimes these people ruminate and they kind of agitate themselves. And so it helps the, the kind of the mental to kind of slow down a little bit. And if the mental slows down a little bit, then you kind of maybe, oh, I don't need to do it this way. And that's what was so interesting with the letter in the newsletter from the Oxford Project. The, the fact that they kind of, they see, oh, I have less calm. I'm starting to be more reactive. So let me practice more. Oh, I have less loving kindness. Oh, let me practice more. Because they see that it's, uh, it helps them uh, to engage in a better way, in a more skillful, beneficial way. I mean, in the prison classes that I teach in and that other people, you know, because we have a large network of people that have told me that, you know, they have a fair amount of enthusiasm with people wanting to practice in the group. You know, when they come to the class, they practice, they have got, they receive guided meditations. And then, but then they don't go practice on their own. And then they, you know, they come back, they depend on this one sort of short 20 minute, you know, meditation kind of doesn't really do it, you know, if, especially during COVID where there could be a large gap with a month before we see them again. And then you have to start all over again. They report the meditation's great, but how do you, can you inspire this sort of path quality that this is something, you know, to, that you could sustain? What's interesting with the people in England, uh, this association, uh, is that actually they, they have like uh, the newsletter, then they kind of like have letter writing. They also uh, give them two books, 
uh, do the right thing and another book. And what it seems to, to happen with this group is that, of course, they have the meeting with the yoga teacher and with the others. But actually, the emphasis is more on actually sitting in their own self. So a lot of what I read from the newsletter is actually people working on their own in their mm -hmm. own self. But in order to be able to do that, in a way, they need to have, uh, be able to listen to it. They need to have the book. Uh, they need to possibly be in a cell, even if sharing with somebody who is okay and safe. So I wonder if the condition in England, uh, in Great Britain, might be different than in America. Because from the newsletter and the letters a prisoner writes, you really have the more the impression that they're actually doing it every day. They say, oh, yes, I, I do my yoga practice every day. I do the meditation every day in myself. So they mm. seem to be less kind of um, just waiting for meeting with everybody. Yeah. The couple of prisons, that I, one of the prisons I teach in now on Zoom is, on, is in a jail. So that's a very chaotic environment, very noisy you know, and also there's, they're coming and going a lot. So it's not, a, the, the population's not that stable. But the other thing is um, they, in America, in the U.S. now, they are giving prisoners tablets in order to have extra material. But unfortunately, we have some material, but they won't, we don't have the security clearance or something to get our material onto the tablets. So they have access to certain apps and they have access, access to the apps that are teaching meditation with the, um, you know, kind of like, it's all like music and waves and dolphins jumping around, you know, very relaxing and it, it helps them sleep. It's very helpful for sleep, but it's kind of do, it's kind of contributing to that dissociative state that they seem to like of just, you know, oh, I'm not here in the prison anymore. I'm in a beach or something, which is totally understandable. But then there's kind of this quality of are they able to get to the training the mind part where you're actually working directly with your habits? Are you just creating another habit that you have to be completely dissociated to feel okay? I mean, so. this is what we, when I, when I was in the prison in South Africa and uh, I was talking about mental patterns and I was actually talking about daydreaming. Mm -hmm. and, and it was very interesting because there was a young man, a prisoner, and you were saying, yes, if I daydream too much, then when I come back to the reality that actually I am not over there, but I am in this cell and it's difficult, then actually I feel a lot of frustration. If I don't do it at all, then I become quite miserable. And in a way, we agreed that they needed to do it up to a point to have like kind of not just being the full wall and in with the situation where they are in order to get a little kind of one we could call pleasant tonality and at the same time not too much because then it can become frustrating when you come back to reality. So at the same time, I think, again, I think it, it could be different with different population that they need to, I mean, you are, especially with COVID, uh, you are between four walls, you are in kind of a not pleasant uh, situation. So I would say it's already quite good that it relaxes them 
And then that kind of, you know, they help them sleep and possibly help them to be a little more mellow, kind of toward themselves and others, who know. And then at the same time, possibly also not everybody will be in the same place. Like, I think in a way, some people just want to wait the, the time out. And then they will do either kind of a strength building or they will do the apps on the, on the tablet. And then some other people, the teaching might really speak to them. And then with those people, then possibly there could be more possibility to work in terms of insight, in terms of habits and things like that. But I think with a kind of a, a wide and varied population, in a way, you will have in the same way that if people come on an evening for meditation outside, some people it will really speak to and some people it might not speak very much to. But you can still, in a way, help them to be more calm, kind of a little kind of uh, more kind of relaxed. So I think, again, it depends on the population and the possibility and how you can introduce them. I think often people are interested in it if you kind of uh, possibly talk about, you know, uh, maybe kind of, I don't know, looking in terms of a thing changing or I don't know how you can address, kind of talk to them in such a way that then they can look at, you know, what are the conditions, what is going on, and will, be and will they be interested in that kind of discourse. It has to be quite simple and practical, I would say. Yeah, I um, recently played, a, you know, because we can play Zoom, we can play tapes on Zoom now for people. And a lot of times the audio is so bad, they can't really hear us talking, but they can hear the tape coming through because we can blast the volume. And um, because I when I go in the prisons, I, I tend to ask a question like, does anyone here experience anxiety? And everybody, everybody always raises their hand. And is it a major problem for you? And everybody raises their hand. Like anxiety is really pretty prevalent, obviously, you know, their conditions like, when am I going to get out? Where am I? What, you know, everything's taken away from me, all the stuff. So there's a lot of anxiety. So kind of giving them some basic breathing skills to cope with the anxiety allows them to have the experience that, that um, they can actually lower their nervous systems really quickly. And then, and I, and we also do some progressive relaxation methods taught by um, this professor down in uh, Florida, Guagu, and we play his tapes and they absolutely love those because they all feel completely like chilled out and like relaxed by the end of the 30 minute tape or whatever. So, I mean, they even went so far in this one prison in the South to like get the correction officer to download the tape and give it to them on their tablets. So then they watched it every day. So they were developing, they developed a whole practice around this one progressive meditation on relaxation. So they had been doing that for like six, six months. And then I said, that was great. And, but then that's all they wanted to do. So I thought, well, maybe I'll introduce something. I did try to introduce something about change. So I did an, we did a meditation on change and I played somebody with a tape on change. And they said, well, the minute the guy started talking, one guy said, I just went into this state of complete, you know, he just dissociated. He loved it, though, but he didn't hear a word he said about change. 
And then he said, and then you rang the bell and I came back. And so all I could say there was, did you notice a change <laughs> when you started? You know, but he, he really was gone off in the fantasy land. And the other guys were like, no, I don't like that. I want to go back to the relaxation. Well, simply, I don't want to think about change. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the one thing you could do is give them the relaxation because that's what they need. But yeah. then what you could uh, kind of suggest to them, when is it that you are anxious? And when is it that you're not anxious? And then you could talk about the three levels. You could say, you are anxious, is it light? Meaning, if you just wait it out, like a few minutes, 10, 20, 10 minutes, it passes. So in a way, kind of checking, how is it, this anxiety? Is it just, it arises? And if actually you don't make it loop in your mind, oh, it's gone. Or if they go back to their breath, it's gone. Or if they do the loving kindness meditation, it's gone. Or if they do the relaxation, it's gone. Then there is an habitual level, like kind of what is it that triggers the anxiety? You know, kind of is it that Sounds trigger the anxiety. Is it thought trigger the anxiety? Is it kind of some kind of like kind of feeling which trigger the anxiety? And then they could just notice, you know, what, what, what triggers it? And then what helps it to pass? Obviously, the relaxation helps it to pass. Possibly watching the breath might help it to pass. And then to look at what I call the intense level, when actually then they're really in it because there was a strong contact. And then here just, that's the way it is. You are very anxious. It's very difficult. You know it's going to pass in a day or two or by the end of the day. And can you create space so that you don't amplify it more than it is. So I don't know. If you had something like that, quite practical, or would they say, oh, I don't want to look at my anxiety? I don't know. No, they were very interested in understanding, you know, we presented, oh, some of like Judson Brewer's material on neuroscience. They, they get interested in the neuroscience of, you know, how it actually happens in the body. And so then they they start to notice that. And so it's good to not just keep it with just the neuroscience, but they, you know, bring it into the practice of noticing the sensations and note, because then they have the lived experience, you know, rather than just thinking about, you know, and how to actually, then they can really work with it themselves, you know, in a way. And yeah, I think it's helpful. You know, there isn't, certainly isn't one cure at all i mean you know there's a practice called straw breath where you do the longer exhale and then when you explain this activates the parasympathetic nervous system which is the relaxation response and when you do the short you know inhales which is the activating the whole system which is the opposite of relaxation but could act you know energize you if you need that then they go oh you know and they have kind of a and the other thing that really stood out was that i brought in some neuroscience from brown university or something that said 
the, the woman said, person said, it's 22 minutes that you have to do of meditation in order to change the gray matter in your brain to grow gray matter. And then I talked a little bit about gray matter would help you with, you know, this or that. And a year later, I said, what does remember from anything in this class? And two of them said, I have to remember that 22 minutes. So I actually set my time and do 22 minutes. And they did actually appear to be quite different. Exactly. <laughs> the way they are. Yeah. So again, you know, some people, it will, oh, it, this makes sense. I can do it. I can yeah. apply it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very uh, helpful for them, I guess. And I like that, that three levels. I think, I, I think I'll talk to these because they just want more and more information on, and the women too, all have a pro- huge problem with anxiety. So, you know, I mean, I've done this and a lot of people other do this when they go in prisons, they sort of do this integrating mindfulness with other things like here's mindfulness and writing or mindfulness and poetry, mindfulness and neuroscience, mindfulness and, you know, and it's kind of like what what we call like the sandwich approach, like you're kind of like got a sandwich and you're putting mindfulness on is like the mustard and everything else gets to be the sort of dominant thing. And the facilitators get very excited about giving a whole lecture and PowerPoints on neuroscience and all this stuff about the amygdala and prefrontal cortex and all this stuff. But then the meditation kind of like starts receding and it's just this interesting download of ideas. And so that beca- that's kind of more and more prevalent. And I wonder what you think about that idea of it's kind of like a little dab of mindfulness will work on your sandwich but it seems to be the opposite to me well we could look at it more that with the neuroscience or with whatever it is you kind of like uh bringing kind of like interest mm-hmm. to say oh uh, so oh yes and then after that it's kind of like making the mes- message that the only way it works is like this 22 minutes that, you know, you, but you can actually do it five minutes every day. Can you do it five minutes every day? And what difference do, does it make? So I think it's really kind of in a way looking at that, that I think this different other thing is to catch people's interest, but also to make them a little bit come out of themselves, like doing poetry. I mean, I, I had uh, somebody who was very depressed and he said the solution he found, like he, he found meditation, but he said what really helped him was to actually, when he found Aiku poetry from Japan, the three, sentence, the three phrases on anything you see outside in nature, and then after that, he went every day and do his three-line poem on something he saw outside. But he said this was transformational because actually it took him out of himself. And then he became more aware of nature. And at the same time, he was creative. So I think it's kind of like, how can you make the poetry in a way creative with the meditation, so that in a way complement each other. I would see it more as complementing in terms of the poetry. In terms of the neuroscience, I see it more, oh, this is interesting. And then the message has to be, ah, but if you want some change, it has to be regular. So in a way, kind of, some complements, some kind of like it's kind of part of the message. 
And also, you have to see, I think there is a question of meditation, sitting meditation. Because they're in prison, they generally kind of uh, don't have much movement. And so I've, that's why I thought what they did in England with yoga and meditation, and yoga was really kind of relatively stationary yoga in your cell. Mm -hmm. What was good there is that there was movement at the same time as meditation. So the people who love to just sit still, then they could do as much meditation as they wanted. But some people really can't sit still. I think there is also that to consider. And that's why I think then meditation in movement, as in yoga or tai chi or whatever, also has to be considered. Because for some people, just to sit still can be wonderful, and for some, it might not be that easy. And so it's kind of like, then can they have walking meditation, but in your cell, it might not be fun. So I think there is also that aspect in terms of meditation. I, I yeah, that's, that totally reminds me of that. That's totally true. Um, in the women's class that, that we teach now on Zoom in the jail, the women are very, very agitated. And they're also coming in there in these tight situations. So I'm kind of like, how can we do yoga? But we we do do we do a fair amount of yoga with them to start out because they're all just so, you know, and they really love it. Even though we're just like getting them to sit in their chair and do these kind of stretches and stretch their arms up. And they're like, oh, that feels so good because they're so like constricted. Their whole bodies are contracted. And, you know, that only adds to the agitation. So it's really, I, we first were trying to do meditation and, and then it was like, now nah, they need to move a little bit and get this, you know, get this stuck kind of like agitation out of the body. So that's a, a large part of it, even though it's pretty challenging to do on Zoom with a group that, you know, they can't hear us, the microphone problems, and then they're far away from the Zoom, you know, and then we're trying to do it in this little box for them to see, <laughs> but they do it. And they, they really, you know, they, they want to do more of that. And then they're willing to do some, a little bit of meditation and they can relax a little bit more. Exactly. To me, that's really kind of, you have to consider the condition yeah. in which they find themselves. And so what's a way which kind of will lead to that meditation posture, but also you have to think of movements. So when you were teaching in South Africa to prisoners, what did you learn about yourself when you were doing that? Did you learn about your own practice or your own? No, I think what everybody learns in terms of uh, going to a prison, uh, my husband, that's what he learns immediately. I learned the same. And everybody we talk to who does this kind of work, you might have learned too, is that they just like you and you and me. People are not, uh, uh, we often think that people in prison are especially bad. I mean, some of them very obviously have done medium bad or especially bad action. But in terms of uh, kind of who they are, they're just like you and me. And some of us, if we had kind of been illegal in some way or if we have reacted impulsively in some other way, uh, we too could have been there. And so I think the, the, the teaching about working in prison is that they're not specially bad. They're not specially monsterish. 
They dress like ordinary human beings. And due to various conditions, I mean, some could be biological, some could be societal, some could be conditional, some could be emotional. Uh, then they end up there because they have caused harm. I mean, that's the thing. They've caused harm. They might have caused harm intentionally, and they might cause harm in, unintentionally. And of course, some people you really please. My husband was very happy that some people were in prison because some of people were really kind of, you wanted them to be removed from the public place for some time because of certain intentionality. But otherwise, a lot of the people are just like, you know, the wrong term, the wrong action, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's one, something that one learns when one go to work in prison. Yeah, and to wind it back just a little bit, when you were talking about the haiku, um, when I, I used to teach in juvie hall for a while, a long time, and you know the ju- the, the kids were really um, had a lot of energy and were really wild, and they didn't want they would they like to like lay down and take a nap when we do guided meditations, and I thought that was okay because it let them get a get a nap, and they you know they felt safe enough to I thought they feel safe enough to take a nap here, then they need a nap, but then. Um, we, I tried all kinds of things. Meditation wasn't working. The, I brought in some games. I brought in music. They could listen to music and try to mindfully listen to the music. I brought in uh, different kinds of yoga. And they, they were very, I was surprised they were, you know, young kids from like 13 to 19, but their bodies were so stiff and tight from being caught up in this fighting stance, I guess. I'm a Kundalini teacher, so I would do really fast yoga with them, you know, energetic where they're ha ha, you know, doing all kinds of, and they liked that. But the thing that really landed with them was when uh, this kid that was co-teaching with me said, let's try haiku. And I was like, haiku? But then he introduced it and he had them write it every week. And it was absolutely beautiful. And they, got, they really got into it and wanted to do it every week. They would just spontaneously every week create a haiku as we go in around the circle. And it was really great. And I know that other people have done that too. In fact, somebody sent me a whole book of haiku that the prisoners had written in her class. And, she, you know, she had formed it into a book. It was beautiful. So, yeah, haikus are really great. Yeah, I think creativity is also because, you know, you're there, you're being condemned, judged, judged by society in some way. Uh, you're feeling kind of, uh, kind of uh, not great in general. And I think if you can be creative in some way, I think kind of uh, that's why when there are uh, some people do theater play project in in jail and how people who do that a lot of the time it really in a way enhances their self worth and then their well being but also the fact of being creative and also sharing something with others. Yeah. So yeah. The the kids in there would always mumble. They would mumble. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't you know, ask them something, mumble, you know. And and finally, I was, it was really getting bad. And I said, so what's going on with the mumbling? Why why aren't you, you know? And they said, oh, everybody says that to us. And I said, well, why is that? And one kid said, well, because nobody ever wants to listen to us. And then I said, well, I do. And this was a really tough kid. And he said back, 
thank you, miss. And then it was like the whole class opened up and they didn't mumble anymore because they got some, just a little confirmation from me that I really did want to hear what they had to say. And it was okay, you know, to talk and, our, you know, speak out whatever you were feeling. So that was, a, that was great. But it was kind of sad that they were mumbling so much. Mm-hmm. You know, that way, like, because, you know, they didn't want to, people didn't want to hear them. They wanted them to shut up and stuff like that, you know, because they were boisterous. So um, I was just talking to someone yesterday and she was talking about when she was kind of like a youth at risk. She said she had the, um, the attitude that she could not care less about consequences. In other words, she was going to do whatever she had to do. She was going to get up in somebody's face or punch them out or beat them up or rob them or do, steal from them, do whatever, knife them. She was going to get it got pretty extreme because she had to do what she had to do. And she also wanted the power of doing whatever she had to do, but she had no, because she said, I've had everything bad to happen to me in my life. So consequences mean nothing to me because what's the worst that could happen? She said, you could kill me. And I, as far as I was concerned, then just bring it on and kill me. She had that attitude. And then I said, well, what changed that for you? And she said, well, I read this, got this book of poetry from Anne Sexton called Live or Die. And she said, and Anne Sexton just said something like, you can live or die, but don't poison everybody in the process. And she said, for some reason, that just woke her up. And she said, I realized I can't live this way anymore. And then she started going to Barnes and Noble and getting in the self-help section and stuff like that. (laughs) She found the Tibetan Book of the Dead. She was attracted to that and started reading that. and then. Her whole life changed. But, you know, she had an attitude that consequences don't matter. And, and I've come across that quite a bit. You know, people are like, whatever, I, I had to kill it. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, because they have, they have experienced things uh, possibly we have not experienced. You see, if you kind of like from a young age, you are in a place which is insecure, which is harmful, which is aggressive, then the only thing that you can manage is survive. And also you really kind of hurt in many, harmed in many different ways. So kind of they, and, and if on top of it, the people who harm them are not punished, then they kind of see that consequences don't seem to happen for some people. Right. So I think it's kind of also very understandable, considering the, the, the condition. There is this beautiful book, which is not about meditation, but the way the person works, to me, is really like the, so meditative in a way. So beautiful, so insightful. And it's called Teens Who Hurt. And actually, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of family therapists, two family therapists who wrote the book for actually training people in that. And so basically they talk, especially one author, about working with teens. And the way he works with teens is to actually emphasize what's good about them. And in order to emphasize what's good about them, he has to listen to them, he has to find something he can kind of say, yeah, oh, that's really good of you to have done that, to have helped your friend or whatever it is. And so he spent a lot of his time listening to these teens 
who hurt themselves and then hurt others. And the way it works, I mean, it's not mindfulness or meditation, but I thought this is so Buddhist in a way. This is so insightful. This is so caring. So I think we can, of course, mindfulness and uh, yoga and different things can help. But I think sometimes it's also what kind of attitude you, do you bring? Because I think in terms of prison, the most important thing is that you see the humanity of the person. And then you can help them, in a way, experience their own humanity and also they experience their own uh, good quality. So in a way, it's kind of how can they flourish? How can they experience as they are good quality and become more confident in that? That's beautiful. So that, that's what you, you, it's kind of like, I was going to ask the question, um, do you have any advice? But that is, that is really great advice. Just always remember the humanity and the humility, yeah. If you had something to say, if you had one technique, sometimes, you know, when you go into a jail or something, when I go in these jails, jails are really, like I said, they're unstable. You get a different group of people every single week, and you maybe only have one shot to say, okay, here's something that you can, you know, because they want something. They're coming to the class because they want their suffering, and they need some help. They want something. Well, I mean, the one thing that I found everybody gets in two minutes is uh, the way I describe grasping. Okay. Like, you know, what is a problem with thought or emotion or sensation is the fact that we grasp at it, and by grasping at it, we amplify it. Mm-hmm. So generally what I do is that I take something and then I hold on to it like this. And then I say, What's going to happen if I do this? And if I do this for any length of time, then first I get a cramp in the arm. And so grasping creates tension. But the worst thing is the second part is that because I grasp at it in this way, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So what's the solution? You could cut the end, which is a little drastic, or you could get rid of the object. But the object is not saying, come, 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 grasp at me. So then what meditation helps us to do is to actually open the hand so that then you can move the object. You can still use object, but you're not grasping at it. And I think that's what often kind of people really get is that if I grasp at something, it stops me from doing something else. And at the same time, it amplifies, it magnifies what is going on. And so in a way, the idea of the mindfulness of the meditation is allowing us enough calm and clarity so that we can use different things without grasping so much, so then we don't amplify so much. And then the two words I said to be noticed as signal is when we say never and always. Mm -hmm. You always do this. 
I am always like this. And then I question, I mean, do they do it every second, every hour, every day, every week, every month? Generally not. And then, then people can catch themselves. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's a great visceral, you know, somatic example that can help land that whole process that you could talk about for a really long time, but you can just get it by gripping the hand like that. I love that. So I guess our time's about up and I really thank you so much for your generosity to come in and do this again. Probably some, a lot of these tips will be played for prisoners. And so I think that's helpful. And so once again, it was a delight to see you. And if anyone wants more information about Martine, martinebachelor.com, is that what it is? Or dot? No, martinebachelor.org. .org. Okay, martinebachelor.org. And you can also, Martine has some really, I'm going to put in a pitch for you. She has some great courses on tricycle. I've attended several of them, and they're all very, very excellent and filled with insights. And then one book which the prisoner finds useful is Let Go. Oh, yeah, the Let Go book is really, really good. It really digs into habits, habitual uh, formations, habitual responses, and, you know, how to work with that. So that's a great practical book for working with the key problem that all of us have. <laughs> thank you, Martine. It was great to see you. Uh, keep well. Thank you for your wonderful work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.